I had my back turned to this cheetah. As I knelt down, her instincts have just kicked in. She's like, perfect snack size. Wow. <laughs> she launched, went into full attack mode, and she'd pinned me with her paws. So everyone is freaking out. Oh my, my husband is filming this entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, honey, can you just move to the left a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a, not a good angle. So he initially thought that she just sort of was playing and like didn't realize she was chowing down on me. So he's still filming. Wow. And then eventually he realizes, okay, this is not a good situation. <laughs> so his camera then goes like to the ground and he comes over and he literally just shoved his thumb in the little gap section of her mouth and poked her in the eye. And that was it. That was enough to get her off. She literally just made this like gurgling sound and then let go and then tried to go for me two more times. Oh my that. God. What? Hey guys, I'm Arye. And I'm Christina. And we are your hosts at the Film Up Podcast, where we explore the stories of accomplished filmmakers and creatives in their road to success. Each podcast is dedicated to a nonprofit of our guest choosing. The goal here is for the Film Up Podcast to help filmmakers and help the world at the same time. And we believe you can do both. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Shannon Wilde. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. And for those of you who don't know Shannon, she is an award-winning National Geographic cinematographer and photographer whose work has been seen across the globe. Originally born in Australia, now living full-time in South Africa, she is living out her dream as a wildlife documentarian. Since 2004, she's worked with clients such as National Geographic, Nat Geo Wild, and the United Nations. She's published three books and is an accomplished international speaker. She's also worked with various wildlife NGOs and nonprofits. And in 2017, she actually founded her own nonprofit called Wild in Africa, Bracelets for Wildlife. And it's a way to directly give back to the various wildlife foundations she's actually worked with. So she would like to dedicate this episode to Wild in Africa. And we're actually wearing some of the bracelets right now and actually when Ari and I got them we (laughs) love them so much we went straight back to the website to get more amazing so for anyone who wants to learn more you can go to wildinafrica.store and we'll also list all the details in the description Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate the support. Yeah. Well, you know, when we first went on the website, I saw like the lion one and I was like, I have to get the lion one because Arya means lion, like my name. But then we saw the three bracelets and I was like, one's just not enough. We're getting the three. (laughs) And then like a few days later, Christina was like, should we order the other ones too? And I was like, we absolutely should. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. No, they look good. It looks good when you stack them too. So the more the better. Now, I actually have a question because they come with like a string that holds all three of them together. Is the string intended to be on there while you wear them? Or once you get them, you take no. the string off? Yeah. So it's uh, it's purely an organizational thing for us to make sure that they 
keep the stacks together when when we ship the orders so yeah you can just just to keep them together especially if when people order multiple so if you order a stack and maybe a single bracelet it's just to keep everything all together <laughs> well <laughs> yeah you know my girlfriend Allie definitely has won this argument and she'll find that out when she listens to the podcast because the string was on it and it was like coming <laughs> off and I was like hey do you mind tying this back on it's like hard for me to tie she's like why and I was like it's it's part of the bracelets and she's like it's definitely not part of the bracelets <laughs> and I was like yeah, it definitely is I, I Allie is always oh, yeah. right all right Allie is always right well well before we dive into all the filmmaking adventures We'd actually love to learn more about Wild in Africa and what inspired you to create it. Great. Look, I never really set out to start a jewelry brand. It's not something I I could look back at my earlier self and think that that would ever happen. But I became really ill in 2016. And mm. so I was actually bedridden for six months. And I became incredibly frustrated with like not being able to be out in the field, not be contributing to these conservation organizations that, uh, you know, I'd met and worked with all over the world. And eventually I just started um, unraveling all these bracelets that I'd collected throughout my travels over the years and started putting them back together. And it was just like a creative outlet initially for me as something to do. And then I realized that if I could sell these, that I could make money for conservation, regardless of if I'm out in the field, you know, making documentaries or taking photos, you know, to contribute. So uh, it was something I could do when I felt like there wasn't anything else that I could do. I started with a little Etsy store and then uh, having actually a background myself in graphic design and art direction, I was able to, you know, eventually brand it properly, build the website. Obviously, I can take pictures, so mm -hmm. I can take pictures of the product. Um, so it was like really scrappy beginnings, and I was able to do a lot of stuff myself, which was fantastic. And then, you know, eventually over the years as we've grown, and I have obviously been able to go back into the field and uh, regain some health, then mm -hmm. it uh, it kind of expanded from there. So I have a few uh, ladies, so we're a female-based business, and I designed everything. And specifically, what we're really proud of is the fact that with our charity bracelets, we give 50% of the purchase price. And uh, like you mentioned in the intro, I know all of these charities personally. So I've been in the field, I've seen what they do, um, how they really need the financial support and actually how far that can go here, especially in Africa. They are super high quality bracelets for one. Mm -hmm. And also um, doing 50% of the cost of the bracelet, that's a big deal because typically it's a certain percentage of the profits, but you're saying whether we make a profit or not, we're giving 50% of what you spend to the foundation, which is risky, yeah. but also really bold and shows we're how committed you guys are to making a profit. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, unfortunately, but yeah, we've, we've donated over 30,000 US dollars so far. Amazing. Between the 13 charities that we currently support. So yeah, we're, we're small, but uh, I have big goals for it and mm. uh, hopefully a really big future. Man, that's a lot of bracelets. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's it's funny because cinematographer, photographer, you know, working with substantial brand names like Nat Geo, those are things that really pull people in. But in reality, there's about a million other hats that you wear and things that you do. Um, and being a filmmaking podcast, obviously, we're really mostly focused on the filmmaking and creative side of it. But one of the ways that we like to start this off is rather than talk about where you're at now, we like to think about where you started from and where you were in the beginning. And a bit of the story that led you into photography, filmmaking, and really got you on your journey to being a creative. It's been it's been a long and very convoluted journey, as I'm sure most people's stories are. Um, I didn't initially set out to to be a photographer, let alone cinematographer. I started in photography uh, not until my mid twenties. So. Uh, Prior to that, I was a graphic designer um, for almost a decade, and I I got a camera for my design business and just started playing around with it and in my free time. And obviously, as someone that loves animals, and that was always a constant in my life. So I was a volunteer wildlife carer, and so I had all these other non-work related ways to kind of fulfill that passion of uh, wildlife and animals in general. So naturally, with a camera in my hand, I gravitated towards taking pictures of animals. And uh, at that time, so this was like early 2000s, so I had a pet reptile uh, called Raja, who was a gorgeous uh, <laughs> little lizard. And I uh, have a, a tattoo of him there on my wrist. I know we're a, uh, an audible... <laughs> interview not a visual one but uh yeah he's definitely um big inspiration for me so i started taking pictures of him and that gradually grew into taking photographs of other people's reptiles i was very active in the herpetological community in australia uh, that led to reptile magazines and then it kind of just grew very gradually from there and in saying that it took me quite a few years to transition into photography full-time um, I obviously had to keep working for a very long time before I, I felt confident taking people's money for photography services but b that it was consistent enough to actually give up a you know a secure job I know that's a, a hard step for a lot of people and it's and it can be a very risky one so the beauty of graphic design is that I was, even when I made that leap, I was still able to do some consulting and some freelance uh, along with mm. that. But in the beginning, I photographed everything. So I animals and wildlife are my absolute passion and focus, but it's such a niche industry to earn a living out of, and especially as a beginner. So mm -hmm. um, I had to diversify. And I did that mm. through, I started a pet photography business. So that really helped lay a foundation business-wise for me. Uh, so lots of dog uh, shoots uh, and then cat shoots as well, which was super fun. It was, um, you know, just very natural stuff. So we'd go to the dog's favorite park and I'd spend two hours running around with this dog and, you know, taking all these uh, natural pictures. So that was a really incredible way to hone my photography skills, especially with moving subjects and still have like a level of control because obviously I had toys and treats and so you know I could somewhat control the situation whereas now working uh exclusively with wildlife that you can't do that 
they will either get eaten or the animal will run away. So that doesn't work. So yeah, it, it was very, very gradual for sure. And then in 2013, so after I'd been uh, working for about a decade as a photographer, I just got to a point where I was like financially stable. And so now if I uh -huh. look back, I literally gave it all up and had to start all over again. But I decided to move to Africa on a whim. <laughs> wow. <laughs> just sold everything that I It was I just owned. a calling. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've grown up on documentaries and David Attenborough and all the blue chip nature mm. stuff. And honestly, I knew that I would always visit Africa. I just didn't think that I would live here and all these things just came together and it was a very convoluted interesting story there's a few elements involved but essentially I it was a very quick decision within a few months I sold everything that I owned except for my camera gear obviously and wow. packed up and moved to South Africa uh, not having been here before and certainly with no network base and so wow. that meant a lot of free work started again and went completely broke was it terrifying <laughs> yes was it like it terrifying was, I, mean, I mean yeah i i mean i had my electricity shut off so many times so like the little food that i could afford <laughs> would go bad in the in the store like in the fridge and then i'd have like these free shoots that i would have to get to but i couldn't afford to put petrol in the car to get to that shoot to do it for free <laughs> so oh my god oh my goodness <laughs> it was tough yeah and where was the bridge from photography to cinematography so it happened at the same time getting to africa um and so my husband is south african and he's a wildlife cinematographer so we'd met and he was very much the influence of like pushing me to take that next step. So I dabbled a little mm -hmm. bit in it, but you know, it can be kind of terrifying. And I was, after this long, I was comfortable in animal and wildlife photography. Like my, I know my gear, I know my camera, I know the fundamentals. Yeah. Um, so it's still a challenge going out and dealing with, you know, unpredictable subjects. But I, there was a certain level of comfort to it. But I will say once I pushed over into cinematography, I mean, it's a whole other level of challenge. So many other things mm -hmm. to think about on top of, you know, stills photography. But it's also incredibly addictive because being able to capture like moments, like animal moments, whether that's, you know, them interacting or playing or running or hunting or just special moments between individuals. There's something about capturing those moments on film versus the still photos where you capture moments. There's like this, it's like a next level of emotional connection to it. And especially with viewers. So being able to then move into filming documentaries and capture moments that then we work with incredible editors to build these beautiful stories. That is literally the stuff I grew up on. So it's amazing to me that it it kind of just turned into this, I never thought I'd be filming. Let's just say that. <laughs> I mean, there's about 50 questions that I have for you because your cinematography is no joke. I mean, you're working with some substantial cameras and gear and we see you making all the posts with the red camera and how you said so th there's so much to go into. But um, Steve Irwin, 
Did he play a role in your life? Did you, you know, growing up in Australia? Yeah, I think as an Aussie, it's it's impossible to not have been influenced um, by him and educated by him. Uh, you know, I'm not so much a fan of the hands-on approach, especially with wild animals, but the amount of awareness and knowledge that he brought to the world is absolutely undeniable. And I definitely am one of the people that has learned stuff through you know, through his shows. So, and I also particularly love that he was a very keen reptile guy because I love, love, love <laughs> reptiles. So, yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite reptile? Uh, favorite, well, Komodo dragon. Ooh. Of course. Mm. <laughs> and I've been very fortunate enough to, to see them and document them in the wild. They are amazing, like a dinosaur. Wow. And you you mentioned, you know, how impactful capturing those moments are. Is there one in particular that really was incredibly impactful to you? Definitely. There's been a lot. Um, gosh, you know, I spent 18 months in India filming a, a melanistic leopard, what we know as a Black Panther. And I have to say, literally the hardest shoot I've done to date very difficult conditions, uh, a very elusive animal. So any moment that we got to see him where I could actually film was so humbling and amazing. But there was this one particular day where I'd spent hours and hours just waiting for him. He was sleeping off in a tree. But the timing of this was I'd spent the morning waiting for him the tourist vehicles who'd been waiting kind of around me, which adds like another layer of challenge to try and film through because everyone else wants the best spot, you know, to view things. Um, they had to leave based on the, the legal requirements, uh, whereas I could stay on. So literally about 20 minutes after all the tourist vehicles had to leave the area, he got down from the tree and like started walking directly towards me. So I'm filming away and he's like eye contact in frame walking directly towards my uh, my frame. And I'm just like, <laughs> like I'm trying to, because obviously we, we manually focus. So I'm trying to focus, track him. And, you know, you know, keep the frame and not freak out and then direction my driver, like positioning the vehicle and all the things. So it was like, that was oh, an wow. incredible moment. Yeah. And how many hours did you have to wait till that exact moment? On that particular day, I'd been in the park since uh, 6 a.m. It's the earliest that we're allowed into that into the national park. And I think he came out, uh, tourists had to leave by about 10 and then it was maybe like 10.30 ish. So, wow. I mean, that's not that long in the scheme of things. Um, this documentary kind of puts into a short format the emotional roller coaster that was those 18 months of following him and, and documenting his life because <laughs> it was, there's lots of drama. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wait, you're, wait, but you're talking about essentially men that need to go out at night and fight for women. This sounds like a problem that we have in general. I don't know. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's, oh a <laughs> it's a universal problem. It's a universal problem. Animals and humans. Establishing we're, we're territory. Very There's lots of peacocking. <laughs> there are literal peacocks there. <laughs> 
Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> so I want to talk about the physical aspect of your job because you travel so much, you wait hours, you have to walk for miles. How do you prepare for shoots like that, both mentally and physically? I think there's only so much that you can do. A lot of the situations and environments we go into, if we haven't been there prior, you kind of just learn as you go. So obviously have a history of um, working with wildlife and observing wildlife. So there's certain things that you obviously pick up and become, I guess, intuitive knowledge. Um, and then there are things that you have to learn while you're there, <laughs> whether, um, mm -hmm. you know, by common sense or by experts that are in that specific location, uh, depending on where we work, sometimes we have to be with a local guide uh, and sometimes not, or sometimes it's at the beginning and then once they're comfortable with us and see that we're capable, then we can do our thing. So it really varies a lot. You know, filming in India for those 18 months from a legal standpoint uh, and the forest departments there and, and because of our film permits, we had to have a, a forest uh, representative with us at all times in each vehicle. So my husband and I were in separate vehicles and each day we would go off in different directions and hedge our bets looking for this Black Panther already half the challenge uh and also had no comms there's no phone signal you are not allowed to have radios in this in this national park so a lot of challenges that we wouldn't necessarily face in africa so it's common having like radios and being able to talk with uh, other people um and discuss sightings and oh there's tracks over here um even how you track animals in africa is completely different to india um given the environment so i turned up in india we'd pitched this documentary to national geographic had it greenlit and then turned up in india and all like okay <laughs> Now I have to learn all these different animals. Um, I can't track a leopard like I would in Africa. It was completely different. Uh, we would normally do that by looking at um, footprints like in the dirt or the sand here uh, in Africa, whereas in India it was so thick and dense. There were no tracks. Like it was just thick bush and grass. So we had to learn how to distinguish certain alarm calls by the monkeys there, Langor monkeys. It took me a good three months, the first three months that I was there to really get a handle on where I was in this forest and kind of learn where the hell I was going. Um, so that was, that was really challenging and interesting. And so something we learned as we went and, you know, in those situations, you just have to learn very quickly. <laughs> you know, for a lot of filmmakers, they'll always say anything to get the shot. But the reality is that you shouldn't be doing necessarily yeah. anything. And when it comes to your role, I'm curious, do you ever worry about being in danger and you know where yes. I'm leading up to you you had <laughs> you you had quite a an experience that I'm sure everyone would love to hear about and I would love to know um, how that impacted you afterwards yeah so perfect example of learning as I went although I should have known better um, so within the first year of moving to South Africa 
on one of my free shoots that I was doing, <laughs> um, I was documenting uh, a cheetah and I was supposed to be documenting it in full stride, like running. So in this situation, it was in a, a captive scenario. So it's at a sanctuary, but not, not in a situation where like tourists and people come in, but it, it's familiar with its carers. So it's been around, you know, it's been around people. They've never had any incidents. Um, and she's very well cared for. Her name was Shelley. And <laughs> look, on this day, uh, Russ was with me. That's my husband. So he was filming it and I was going to do the stills. And so I'd met her. She seemed fine. And after that, I kind of just stopped taking notice of her body language, which I mean, as a wildlife photographer and cinematographer, is like <laughs> number one rule not to do, like big mistake. So I'm busy setting up and essentially I found a spot and I, I turned to one of her carers as I'm starting to kneel down and say, do you think it's okay if I kneel down and shoot from here? But I didn't give her time to answer. I'm already knelt down. Idiot. Wow. <laughs> and so <laughs> I had my back turned to this cheetah. I'm down on my knees and I didn't have a grip on my camera. So to do that, I had to tilt my head. My left ear went to my shoulder and so the right of my neck was open, but I had my hair out. So it was sort of covering my neck from behind. As I knelt down, her instincts have just kicked in, like natural instincts. She's like, perfect snack size. Wow. <laughs> so immediately, she just switched immediately. Uh, and so I didn't see it coming, obviously, until she was on top of me. She launched, went into full attack mode and kind of pounced on me from behind. So the her weight of her body was over on my shoulders, on my back, and she'd pinned me with her paws and she'd gone to like do a proper neck kill, like, you know, in the wild, they will go for the throat and they yeah. will suffocate the animal. So so everyone is freaking out. There's lots of yelling. And then someone grabs a stick, her main carer, grabs a stick and tries to shove it in like the gap of where her mouth is on my arm to try and leverage her off. And it literally just broke stick and she just went harder. So finally, oh my, <laughs> my husband is filming this entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, honey, can you just move to the yeah, left? Yeah, yeah. Not, a, not a good angle. So <laughs> the thing is, this whole time I hadn't made a sound. I literally, I didn't scream. I didn't even talk. I was in so much shock. Um, yeah. So he initially thought that she just sort of was playing, like jumped up on me and was on my back and like didn't realize she was chowing down on me. So he's still filming. Wow. And then eventually he realizes, okay, this is not a good situation. So his camera then goes like <laughs> to the ground and he comes over and being South African bush guy, has grown up here. He literally just shoved his thumb in the little gap section of her mouth and poked her in the eye. And that was it. That was enough to get her off. She literally just made this like gurgling sound and then let go and then tried to go for me two more times after that while I, oh, <laughs> while oh I got in the vehicle. Uh, to get out of the way because she, you know, she'd got her prize and now it's like, you're taking this away from me. So they distracted her by giving her her, wow. her piece of meat under the tree. I get on the vehicle. The adrenaline starts to like to leave my body. So 
at first I'm kind of like laughing and it's like, it's fine. It's fine. I was worried about the other people around me. It's fine. It's fine. I'm good. And then I passed, like passed out <laughs> from, from the shock. Wow. So then I'm just like, Russ has still got footage and I haven't released this, but I'm literally like on the back seat of the vehicle and I'm just gray, like I'm white. And then they took me off to the doctor and that's a whole other story in and of itself, but it was very painful. Wow. Yeah. The, it kicked in pretty quickly wow. after that. And then by day four, oh my God, the, the swelling and the agony, it was awful, but I can still use my hand. It was my left hand too. And I'm left hand. Dominant, <laughs> so that would have sucked. It's unbelievable because even how you're talking about her, you're saying it with such empathy and care. And it's like remarkable. Like if, if like an animal came and just bit a chunk out of me, you know, your thoughts would be a lot of people would just respond very angrily or maybe just not like that kind yeah. of animal or whatever it is. And you were like, no, it made sense, <laughs> you know, this and that and the other. And you were like, went into her psyche and you're like, this is what would happen if this situation yeah. happened. And, and I, I, get it. I made the mistake. You were also so like, we saw some of the video. I think this was before you passed out, but you were so chill. It was definitely before. You were more chill than I am when I get a mosquito bite and you got mauled by a cheetah. <laughs> <laughs> I and you know it's it was such a glaringly obvious thing to me that it was my privilege to be there in the first place and so there was never a moment in my mind where like I I was more worried for her afterwards I was obviously worried for me because now I had to go through the recovery process but circling back to how absolutely broke I was at this time. <laughs> the place where it happened drove me to the nearest town and took me to the doctor. Um, so he gave me a prescription for painkillers and antibiotics. And so we get to the pharmacy and I'm like, I literally don't have enough money for both. <laughs> so I, and it was maybe the equivalent of five US dollars. Like I didn't have it. It was like maybe 70 Rand. Wow. Um, so I had enough money to get like one or the other. So I'm like, I'm getting the painkillers. <laughs> and then of course it got infected and I then had to like borrow money from someone to then go and get the antibiotics. Cause like, I literally had like green pus coming out of my arm. <laughs> so I was so broke, so broke. That was like, uh, I took the stitches out myself kind of job and definitely no um, like physio or any of that stuff I couldn't afford any of that so I pay the price now because oh I got a lot of nerve damage but anyway Oof. well I mean you've obviously been through so many crazy situations so I mean for anyone listening who is interested in going into wildlife photography and cinematography what advice would you give them I would say don't be discouraged by my previous stories. <laughs> no, I honestly, there's been so many challenges. It is a tough uh, industry to make a living in and I would not trade it for anything. So my advice is to stick at it. It is very competitive. And so someone that's now been working in the industry for a long time and sees uh, new people coming in, the key is really persisting. Uh, you need to network. And obviously that's a lot easier these days with social media. You have to be persistent in that because the people that aren't fully dedicated to it, 
they drop off along the way. So then the few people that are left who are really committed to this being their vocation are the ones that have stuck it out and, you know, really stuck with it. And that doesn't mean you have to like give up everything else and not have a secure living. You can juggle those both while you get the experience and the networking and the contacts, and then you can get the jobs. Like there are ways around it. And in terms of, you know, educating yourself this day and age, I mean, people have access to everything that they want to know. So you can go onto YouTube. If there's a technical aspect, you can easily look up and learn about things and educate yourself and then go out and practice it so that it makes like actual sense to you. So I recommend going out and practicing as much as possible, make mistakes, learn from them, uh, preferably not uh, mistakes with wild animals if you can help it. <laughs> I definitely learned from that. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely stick with it if this is what you want to do because it is not, it's definitely not an easy job. So then why would the, the lead up process be easy as well? It, Think of it as, um, you know, part of your training of like once you get there, you're constantly battling for jobs and that's just that's just part of it, part of the journey and the process to make you appreciate uh, when you do get the paid jobs and, you know, get to work with incredible organisations like BBC and National Geographic and, and those kind of level. Yeah. So just stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. So, I mean, we've known you through social media, I think like five years now, so. um, coming on five years. Yeah. And, you know, the landscape of the industry has changed a bunch, especially when it comes to female filmmakers. And I'm curious, especially in your niche of wildlife, what changes have you seen? Definitely more females coming up in this industry, which is fantastic. Um, I feel like because the visibility of it Certainly when I started out in photography, there weren't really, like I would look up to Jane Goodall um, and the fact that she's, you know, out doing ecological work, but not necessarily from a photography standpoint. So there weren't a whole lot of female, or any actually that I can think of, female wildlife photographers or filmmakers that I was aware of growing up that kind of influence this journey. But now I can, you know, I can definitely think of a few. So we're, we're getting that visibility and I can see that then having a knock-on effect of interest in this line of work, whether it's, uh, you know, photography or cinematography, but in terms of wildlife and it generally being still such a male-dominated field. But I can see that slowly, slowly changing, which is really nice. And I think social media has helped with that. Yeah, I mean, just from the social media lens, I remember 2017, specifically around that area, when we just start, started talking to you, we had such a hard time even finding photos of female filmmakers, like BTS yeah. content. And when we did find them and we posted them, they actually did considerably less engagement than the other photos. And it was so interesting. And Ari and I had a conversation about it because, you know, when you normally you're like, oh, this 
perform best, let's find something that's similar to that to post. But we had a conversation because we were like, yeah, these aren't doing as well, but it's so much more important that we post them for the long term of giving visibility to female filmmakers that we need to keep posting them. And so we did. And, Absolutely. you know, I felt like we were constantly posting you because you were like the one person that we could find on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's definitely opening up more. You know, I did a, a speaking, a live show series with National Geographic, and uh, it was actually about the making of the Black Panther film. But what it allowed me was to go city to city in the US and meet all these people. And there were so many, like, school-aged girls that came up and spoke to me and said that this is what they wanted to do. So that was so encouraging and inspiring for me that I could actually see that it was becoming a more balanced mix with the kids that would come up and talk to me after the shows because, you know, I don't, I don't think it would have been the same 10 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly. It's amazing. You know what's so interesting? We just interviewed uh, the gaffer on Euphoria, Danny Durr, and we asked him about some of his advice and recommendations to filmmakers. And he said something very similar to you, which is um, stay consistent with it, but only if you want to do it. Yes. Because you're not necessarily going to find success and it's a pretty brutal job. You have to really love what you're doing and you can't really think about, um, am I going to be big? Am I going to make a ton of money? You just have to love what you're doing. And if you love it, keep doing it. And it was the same exact thing that you said. That is so, so true because you know, during those times where it is financial hardship or physical hardship. And I, I mean, I could just go on and on about all these different challenges over the last 20 years. If it wasn't because of an innate passion for wildlife and imagery, there wouldn't be anything to keep me going because, you know, when the money wasn't coming in and the, the health wasn't there, it's, it, you have to draw on something else. So absolutely. If the, if the challenge comes and it has to be a bigger motivation, then recognition because it's fleeting and the money in this industry is not why you do it. I can assure you of that. <laughs> Your background is so fascinating because you didn't necessarily come into photography or filmmaking because you loved it. You may have not necessarily even spent too much time thinking about if I want to do photography or filmmaking. You said, I love animals. I want to make, uh, I want to give myself a more holistic view of animals. I should just get into media and taking photos of them because I love them. And then this became something that is very much synonymous with your name, which is photography and cinematography. It's just what you do and who you are. Mm -hmm. um, was there a moment along your career, you know, that you went from eating the ramen noodles, if they have those in Africa, to the moment of like, oh, wait, I can actually do this. I got this moment of success, which has now illuminated a future possibility of survival and, you know, economic stability. Yeah, <laughs> definitely still not economic stability, um, but certainly better than uh, when I started. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and it helps living in uh, Africa with a lower cost of living. Of course. But I will say once I packed up and moved here, the first three years were really, really tough. Um, so that was in 2013. So I feel like by the time we got to, honestly, it was even closer to 2018 where I feel like there was 
sort of regular paid work coming in of a, a consistent nature. And then that's obviously like a constant that you have to chase. You're constantly looking for mm -hmm. the next job, next job. Um, but yeah, I feel like maybe 2018 is uh, 2017, 2018 around then. And that's also when I first started working with National Geographic, but it was smallish and then kind of the relationship grew from there. But it's very convoluted and there's so many times I've been sick or like on the India shoot, I broke my back in two places on that shoot and was out oh for God. nine months. Like wow. it's just this never wow. ending story of like mishaps. Uh, wow. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've collapsed in the Masai Mara and been medevaced to hospital, then bedridden for six months. That's how I started the jewelry line. And then, you know, I feel like <laughs> I've just come back and then, yeah, break my back in the field wow. in the middle of nowhere. It's like, what? <laughs> That's wow. why you have to keep going back to, it's definitely the passion for animals and, you know, that you want to still keep doing this. But uh, like I said, I would not trade it. We're going to need an, a whole nother podcast <laughs> with you to learn about all of these stories and situations. But I, I do want to ask about your relationship with National Geographic and some of the projects that you worked on. How has that relationship been with them? Yeah. So it's something that that gradually evolved, like I mentioned. Uh, so the first time I worked with them was in 2016, and that was on a series uh, called Safari Brothers. And so it was based in the Okavanga Delta in Botswana, and I was specifically focusing on uh, like wildlife shots. It was kind of like a reality series, like it had hosts and that kind of thing, uh, but I would go off separately. Like I didn't have to film any of that. Mine was purely, I was hired to just go out and look for animals and, and shoot kind of B-roll to fill out the show. And that, so that was my first kind of intro with them. And then that relationship kind of grew gradually and Russ and I regularly pitch uh, show stories. So the first show that we ever had greenlit was actually the Black Panther doco. And so that's was kind of my first long-term uh, documentary shoot with them. Uh, and then that led to the speaking tour and doing their live series. Um, and my images are represented by them. So, you know, it's been over the years now. What's that? Six years? Is that only six years? feels longer. Yeah, it feels longer. But um, they've been so incredibly welcoming. It's it's a big company, but it feels like a family. And, and over the last few years, it has been through a lot of changes, two takeovers within that time. So that obviously, you know, changes the people that you're dealing with. But, you know, everyone's been incredible. So I'm super proud to work with them. I mean, that's like I never could have dreamt that I would. Yeah. I, I mean, wow. it's not often I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Struggling to find the words, but yeah, very, very honored to be able to to do that and be associated with them. It's amazing. And, and when you do these projects, whether it be with Nat Geo or elsewhere, what's your favorite camera package to work with in the wild? Well, it keeps evolving. So, <laughs> I mean... I'm glad you asked. Yes. <laughs> so, as you know... Big, big fan of red. And I mean, that's just a whole other part of cinematography is getting to play with these incredible toys and building up my collection. 
um, of cameras. And so they finally brought out a wildlife dedicated camera that they literally, they reached out to a few wildlife cinematographers my husband and I included in like, what would be your ideal camera setup? And we're just like, this, 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 this. <laughs> and not knowing exactly where that would lead to. And then I think it was maybe like 18 months later, they're like, we have a camera and it's for you guys. Like it's literally dedicated wow. to wildlife cinematography. So that's the, the V Raptor. It's, uh, I believe it's the newest camera that they, that they brought out. 8K. Um, you've got like high frame rates to work with this ridiculous amount of resolution. Obviously the quality is exceptional. Um, the build as well. So rugged. I mean, we have really tricky conditions that we work with. So we need a camera that isn't going to overheat, um, that can deal with dust, super cold, isn't going to freeze, like all the things. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I got to, I got to test that out as part of, uh, the launching of that. And gosh, that was only a few months ago. Wow. That's amazing. And it was magic. So that is, uh, it's on the order list now. So even as someone that works directly with red, there, I, there's still a waiting list. <laughs> still a waiting list. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we get closer to the end here, we, we, typically like to do a segment called rapid fire where we ask a few quick fun questions um so we'll, okay. we'll head into that so the first one is if you could only pick one animal to shoot for the rest of your life which animal would that be uh, gosh <laughs> if it was for the rest of my life as much as i would love to say komodo dragon i'd have to pick a big cat just because there's going to be more happening <laughs> more behavior uh, i would choose a leopard very very challenging but so rewarding and such a beautiful strong amazing animal cool is there a specific wildlife situation you haven't shot yet that you want to capture so many so uh jaguar i haven't filmed in the wild jaguar hunting caiman would be absolutely incredible although i'd be very torn also as a wild as a reptile lover um because you know i like want the caiman to to win as well <laughs> um bears i mean i've i've done polar bears uh but i would love to document bears in alaska to be amazing um there's so many uh, galapagos island is like top of my list marine iguanas and lava lizards and the pink iguana there i mean there's so many there's so many like i <laughs> i've been fortunate i've traveled to a lot of places i've done seen incredible incredible animals and have done this for a long time but there is still a very very long list <laughs> that's still to come Okay, two more questions. What is the weirdest DM you've ever received? You do not want the weirdest one. I get a lot of marriage proposals. Let's just really say that. wow. Yes, people I do not know. <laughs> okay, last one. What is the motto that you live by? Well, I have it tattooed on me. So I'll keep you safe. You keep me wild. Oh, I love that. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. 
Well, one of the final questions that we have is, what are some of the projects you're currently working on? Is there anything you need or people you're looking to connect with? And we'd love to just hear a bit about that. Okay, so there's a few things in the pipelines, but uh, majority, not allowed to talk about. Uh, finishing off a Nat Geo uh, doco on white lions here. So I live near the only population of natural like white lions in the wild. Um, and so that's also been a very challenging uh, documentary because it's very hard to find them. <laughs> and you're looking for specific <sighs> animals. You can't just go out and go, oh, there's a lion. I can film it and then put together this story has to be like specific lions like and so you're constantly trying to follow a certain uh pride and they split off and they do all the interesting stuff at night like it's that's another one of those challenging things um yeah there's quite a few things coming up that i'm not allowed to talk about mm -hmm. damn it <laughs> 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 All right. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the Film of Podcast. This has been really awesome. I think we're going to need more time talking to <laughs> you at a separate point. There's like... To, this would be like four hours long if we really asked everything we wanted yeah. to ask. <laughs> All right, Tina, you want to close it out? Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Film Up podcast. I'm your host, Christina. And I'm Arya. Stay tuned for our next episode dropping every Tuesday. Until next time. Mm -hmm.